The Dark Side. This is um, the fourth instalment, as you heard. Uh, so far, we've, we've covered topics such as forbidden fruit. That was Genesis chapter 3, where we looked at temptation. The next week, we looked at the armour of God, because we need to uh, be equipped to do battle when it comes to spiritual warfare. We looked at Ephesians 6. Last week, we looked at Satan's downfall. Uh, any strategist or general would say, if you're going to actually win a battle, you need to know the enemy or know about the enemy. Um, today, we're looking at the topic, two good things about hell. Two good things about hell. Um, and uh, I'm going to share one good thing at the beginning of the message and one good thing at the end of the message. Let's have a look at a couple of scriptures here. Uh, Jesus' own words, Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left... Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 20.10. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, you notice within both those passages, Jesus said, where, what, why was hell prepared? For the devil and his demons. Um, so our first point, our first positive thing about hell is this. Hell was originally created for fallen angels. Hell was originally created for fallen angels. When God created hell, he did not have humans in mind. It was created for fallen angels. I remember in my old church, Crossway South, um, we had a chap one Sunday. He uh, got up before the sermon and, and gave a testimony. And in his testimony, he talked about the reality of hell was the reason he came to faith in Jesus. His story basically goes like this. He said that, look, I, was, um, I had an injury at work. You know, my back was kind of twisted. My back was seriously damaged and uh, I couldn't work anymore. And as a result of that, I, I, fell, I fell into deeper and deeper depression. I started to smoke marijuana, use other drugs, but I found they didn't really make things better. Uh, I started to have quite severe mood swings. My wife got sick of it because I was becoming really angry. And my children and my wife were both scared of me. And uh, in, in the end, my wife got sick of it. She decided she was leaving me. And um, in the thick of all of this, I thought, look, I just need to end this life. I hate life. I'm not going on with it. I just want to commit suicide. And somehow in the thick of all of that, he got this, well, he would, he would say revelation. He didn't know Jesus, knew nothing about God, no church background. And he got this something of a revelation that hell was a real place. And he wouldn't be facing death, he'd be facing eternity, eternal punishment. And in the thick of that, he, it made him reconsider. He didn't know where the thoughts came from. Well, it got to the stage where he thought, look, um, he, he wanted to go through with it because he felt he deserved hell. But he was also quite concerned about it. He told his wife, He'd planned his day. He was committing suicide. He'd said goodbye to the kids. And uh, so, um, just to recap on that story, lost the mic there for a moment. Uh, he got to the point, despite the revelation of hell, he thought, look, I'm going to go through with it anyway. I don't deserve to live... I'm a bad person, and he planned it. He said goodbye to the kids and went on to uh, say goodbye to his wife, and she said, um, told her that she was he was committing suicide. She said, yep, yep, yep get it sorted. Uh, she was sick of him. Uh, anyway, the day came, and he 
got talking with his neighbour and he said, I'm not going to bring it up with him because he will try and talk me, talk me out of it. He'd had a few talks with his neighbour. He knew he was one of those religious types. He'd invited him to church several times. But in the journey of conversation, he spilt the beans. And something he said was, you know, he just talked about how he deserved hell. His neighbour confirmed hell is a real place. But he said, look, mate, we all deserve hell. You don't deserve it any more than I do. The fact is God loves you. He didn't create hell for you. He loves you. He wants you to come to heaven. Why don't you come to church with me? We've got this fantastic outreach at the moment. He came along, gave his life to Jesus Christ. He said, I was completely turned around, got off the drugs, my life completely changed. Now I just want the world to know that both hell is a real place and Jesus is a real God and he can rescue anyone who places their faith in him. You know, um, I realise that um, hell is certainly not a popular topic. But the interesting thing, I'm a bit of a student of Australian history of revivals. And when there's revivals in Australia, hell is preached on all the time. We get complacent when there's not a move of God. First full-length sermon I heard on hell was by Pastor Stuart Robinson from Crossway Baptist. Uh, great message. And he, one of the things he said in there is, we gospel preachers, we are guilty of the great omission. We don't want to talk about hell or judgment. You know, we just avoid it. But the truth is, if you're called to preach the Word of God, you've got to preach the whole gospel. And this has certainly been the case throughout history. In the 1700s, John Wesley, he says this, great revivalist. He says, I want set before me a picture of both heaven and hell. Heaven for the glorious hope it brings. Hell, why? Because it motivates me to share the gospel with the lost. He led tens of thousands of people to Christ. The same uh, in the 1700s, but across the waters, Jonathan Edwards, another famous revival from the United States. You know, his, his most famous revival sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he preached that sermon in one church where there was this incredible move of the Holy Spirit. It's recorded that people were literally clinging onto the, the pews for fear that the abyss would open beneath them. Well, from that message, a revival sprung out in that town, a wonderful, glorious revival where virtually the whole town came to faith in Christ. Moving to the 1800s, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, wonderful evangelistic movement back in those days. They, they saw tens of thousands of people in the East End saved in London. William Booth said this, that he wanted every member of his churches to be hung over hell. Why? He said, because if they saw the horror of the place, it would motivate them to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, we're told that in the book of Jude, Jude 1.23. Save others by snatching them from the fire. You move into the 1900s and um, Africa saw a whole string of revivals for decades. It's still seeing them today in many countries in Africa. And through that period where in early 1900s, it was only 3% Christian. You know, after a few decades of revival, it was 50% Christian. And in the journey of all that, hell was being preached on regularly. A regular theme, still is to this day. You turn all the way to the 2000s, Billy Graham. In the, early, in, the, in the 2000s, he was 96 years of age. He made this statement in one of his, his sermons not long before he passed away. He said this, You may wonder what hell is really like. Don't look to the comedians for answers. The Bible tells you the truth. Hell is a place of sorrow and unrest, a place of wailing 
and a furnace of fire, a place of torment, a place of outer darkness, a place where people scream for mercy, a place of everlasting punishment. Now, where did Billy get those ideas from? Well, let me explain that he got them directly from the words of Jesus Christ as recorded in the Gospels. You know, Jesus, he shares more about hell than any of the prophets in the Bible. Why is that? Well, one, all things were created through Jesus Christ, including the place destined for the fallen angels. But secondly, his heart of compassion on people was such, he wanted them to be warned. Let me read some of his words here. Mark 9.43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to go, than to go with two hands into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. And Jesus is being deliberately graphic and um, in saying that, look, look uh, you, you're better off suffering the pain of having a hand cut off or a foot cut off or even an eye gouged out, as painful as that would be. You're far better off experiencing that than ending up in hell. He's trying to be dramatic, graphic. Why? Because he wants people to realize this is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. I'm going to mention seven descriptive words that are used about hell. Number one, this is the most common. Fire. We've all heard about that. Fire. Jesus uses the term many times himself. I mean, think of the reality of fire. You know, probably some of you have met people who have had severe burns. You know, I have. And they, they talk about the most incredible pain. Out of all the things they've suffered, you know, broken bones and stuff like that, cuts and bruises, fire being burned was far, far worse. Terrible pain. Um, you remember the... Um, Black Saturday, the, the bushfires, um, King Lake and around there. I had a, uh, a friend of mine, his brother lived up there in King Lake. And uh, his, his brother had the, the good sense. He thought, I stuffed my house, I'm not wetting that down or anything, I'm out of here. And he, he took off. But his, his, I didn't meet him, but I, met his, I knew his brother. And his, he was saying that he saw in his rear vision mirrors the fire just racing over the, the hills and the mountains, just coming, this the colossal speed, huge thing. And uh, he got away fine, but he said, this was his words, he's not a Christian person, not a religious person, no religious background. He said, I've seen the fires of hell and I never want to be there. Isn't it interesting? Somewhere, even without any sort of religious background, we've got this concept that there's something in the future, some spiritual place, some horrible destination that includes incredible fire. You know, the Japanese in the Second World War, they invented some terrible tortures. One of them was to bury people in sand standing up up to their neck in the middle of summer. And they would matchstick their eyes open um, so their eyes were held open with matchsticks. Their eyes would literally boil in their sockets, apparently. The, the odd person who escaped that, they said, it felt like my body was being burned alive. No flames, but it felt like my body was being burned alive. Another descriptive term is eternal punishment, eternal punishment. The emphasis of the fire never goes out, it's never quenched. 
Look at uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. It says, They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out of the presence of the Lord. It's an everlasting destruction. I know it's almost impossible for to get our eyes around eternity because we're finite people. We're used to a beginning and an end. But the scriptures are filled with this concept of being eternal. You see, the Bible talks about the, the spirit part of us never dies. Angel or human, there's an aspect of you, your spirit will never die. It lives eternally. Um, you know, a billion years is just a grain of sand on the Mount Everest of eternity. Ray Comfort, um, when preaching on this topic of hell, uh, the New Zealand, now American evangelist, he says this, that if a moth from planet Earth, a regular-sized moth that flies a regular speed, made of everlasting metal. If it flew from planet Earth, normal speed, all the way to Pluto, clipped Pluto with its wings and flew back to planet Earth, eventually wearing down Pluto to nothing, by then, eternity has just begun. Another word that is used is worms. Worms. I understand from the translation, it could mean very large maggots. Nasty stuff. It says in the book of Isaiah 66.22, As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me, the worms that eat them will not die, the fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. I remember watching a, a movie uh, titled Escape from Hell, and in one of the graphic scenes of hell, it had people with great clouds of worms eating them alive. Actually, it's interesting, um, in, in the book of Acts, uh, King Herod, he had uh, recently had one of the apostles executed, James. And he stood in front of a large crowd, elevated with all of his fine robes on. And someone calls out, this, this is not a man, this is a God. He embraces that concept. God struck him down. And it says his body was eaten by worms or maggots for the next three days before he died. Perhaps his eternal punishment started early. Matthew 8.11 says this, And I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness is another one. Darkness, number four. Darkness. Darkness. It says in uh, 1 Samuel 2.9, He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. You know, I remember um, when I first was studying this topic of hell, I was probably, I don't know, I've been saved for two years, perhaps two and a half years, something like that. And as I was studying, I started to feel this uh, deep concern for my father. When I became a Christian, my dad said, Oh, son, you know, you can't believe in God when you've, you've been in a war. Uh, so my, my dad, um, I was a, the last in the family. Dad had kids fairly late and um, he fought in the Second World War. He was a sergeant. 
So he saw serious action. Can't believe in God, son, when you've experienced a war. And I remember praying, God, help him realise eternity. And I prayed he'd, he'd have a vision of hell. Seriously. Well, within a couple of weeks, one or two weeks, my mum told me, oh, Dad, I had this awful nightmare. And he, you know, and so I asked him about it, and he told me, oh, I was in this, I was in this pit. I was in this pit, and it was so dark. Like, you couldn't see a hand in front of your face. I've never seen such dark, oppressive darkness. And I'm trying to climb out of this pit, trying to climb out of it, trying, and I keep sliding back down, and there was something in there, and it was coming after me. It was going to get me. It's terrifying. You might say, well, gee, that's not, not a good prayer to pray, is it, Lee? Praying for your dad to have a vision of hell? Well, not long after that, he gave his life to Christ and started coming to church with me. The reality of eternity is something we, you know, many people will shut out of their minds. And uh, even for us Christians, we only want to think of heaven. We certainly don't want to think of hell. But the challenge for not thinking of eternity and not realizing its reality is it, it, it dulls down. It dulls down our perception of true reality. Another term that is used is weeping. Number five, weeping. Lonely, aching, miserable, suffering people. Uh, Bill Wise, in his book, 23 Minutes in Hell, he talks about this out-of-body experience where he believes his spirit left his body. And one of the things that he talks about is the incredible sound of the weeping and screaming and crying that he heard in hell. He said that alone was just terrifying, oppressive, disturbing. I mentioned a little bit about his book. Um, this was uh, came out a while back now, probably, I don't know, getting on for 20 years ago. Bestseller in the New York Times. Um, the chap who writes it uh, is quite a conservative fellow, not one inclined to have visions from a conservative church background. Um, to explain how it happened, he just came home from church one Sunday night at the prayer meeting um, and uh, he got up for a glass of water about three in the morning and finds himself in the living area and suddenly he said, I, it was my spirit left my body. I'm sure my spirit left my body and it's traveling at this enormous speed and it seems to be going down, down, down. And he said, I came to and I was in hell. And he vividly describes his experiences in the book. Um, he said, and then his body came back. He met Jesus came and brought him back, he says. And he came back to his body. And he said, as he came back, his spirit was back. He just was shrieking in pain. He was so disturbed by what he saw. His wife heard him. And she, she runs out, of course, to the living area and, and, and talks with him. But she noticed when she woke up, it was 23 minutes past three. And so they believe the vision or the experience lasted for 23 minutes. That's the title, 23 Minutes in Hell. Now, the guy goes on to say this because uh, he, he, um, he said, well, first of all, he said, well, I didn't want to tell people about it because I thought they'd think I was a nutter because he's from a conservative church and weren't into visions and that sort of thing. And so eventually, eventually, after a few years, he had a few friends that say, I think you should write a book about this. And churches wanted him to speak about it and so on until eventually he, he decided he would write a book. But as he said, he spoke, ended up speaking, preaching all over America. He already did a bit of lay preaching. Preached all over America, but he said, but I never took a dime. This is not about me making me money. He, he was wealthy anyway. He made his money in real estate. 
Um, but he goes on to say, I don't care if you believe my story or not. Just read the 150 scriptures I've got in here about hell. You know, because I think we have just forgotten about the reality of it. We need to be alerted to its reality afresh and anew, like the preachers of old. Matthew, so I'd recommend that if you want to grab a copy. I think we've got one in our library too. Matthew 13, 49. It says this. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's one you've heard before, isn't it? Gnashing of teeth. Weird statement. Gnashing of teeth. Now, it could be, um, we got it up there? Where's gnashing of teeth? There it is. Gnashing of teeth. You know, um, it, it could refer to the suffering and gnashing of teeth in pain. But, you know, there's an interesting scripture um, where it's in the book of Acts and it says the religious leaders gnash their teeth in anger at the Apostle Paul. And so perhaps it also might refer to anger. I tell you what, I reckon there's a lot of angry people in hell. Angry at themselves for not listening to the preachers, not listening to the Holy Spirit, perhaps not even listening to their own conscience because I think God has placed the conscience in every one of us, certain awareness of God and the reality of eternity. Perhaps angry at friends who said this to them, what are you talking about, mate? Don't get all religious on me. You can't believe you're thinking of God. You know, how on earth can you believe in God in a scientific age? Or friends that said, oh, you'll be right, mate. Talking about, you're a good man. You know, Peter's going to let you in the pearly gates. You'll be fine. Angry at friends who said, oh, there's many paths to God. Just pick the path that suits you. If it's new age, that just suits you. Just pick whatever path you like. Perhaps angry too at Christians. Christians in the workplace or family members who never warned them, even though they were committed Christians. We've looked at six words so far. Fire, eternal punishment, worms, darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. But worst of all, can I suggest this? Worst of all, number seven, is separation from God. Separation from God. Now it tells us in the um, book of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, in one sense, you might say, well, that doesn't sound quite as bad as the other stuff, just being away from the presence of God. But I think here on planet Earth, there's a lot of goodness, kindness, love, but I believe a lot of that's there because God is still present on this planet. You imagine in a place where all of those things are removed, no love, no forgiveness, no goodness, no kindness, nothing of that nature present at all. Uh, the chap, Bill Wees, who writes that book, 23 Minutes in Hell, Bill Wees actually says that that was one of the other traumatic things. He says the sense of nothing positive was absolutely overwhelming. 
It says in Matthew um, 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now they're the words of Jesus. And one of the things that I know it's a little difficult to understand, but there seems to be this emphasis on not just spiritual but physical suffering. And certainly in uh, Bill Weezer's book, as he sees what's going on in hell, he said the suffering was also physical. That somehow humans were reunited with in bodily form. In other words, their spirit and body were reattached in some way. It was physical reality in hell, not only spiritual. Not just your soul, but your body, says Jesus. Um, great theologian Warren Wiersbe, uh, he's probably best known for Back to the Bible. He wrote more than 150 books. Um, very theological, many of them, but also very accessible. His B series, B-E, uh, sold um, millions of copies. He's pastor for many years, later professor of preaching, and uh, if we pop him up here, Grand Rapids um, Theological Seminary uh, is where he taught for many, many years, and uh, this is one of, the, one of his statements uh, from, um, oh, well, I'll read it. He mentions in his commentary, on the Gospel of Luke, that Luke 16, 19 through 31 is not a parable, but an account, as nowhere else does Jesus name a character in a parable. The Lutheran Bible commentary would agree with his comments. Let's read this next passage. You may have thought of it as a parable, but um, as this scholar says, it's an account. It's something Jesus is telling us about that actually happened. 16, 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up. And saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in agony in this fire. You notice there within that passage, there's a whole bunch of different senses mentioned. First of all, he looked up. The rich man could clearly see. Um, it says, cool my tongue. The idea was if Lazarus could just dip his tongue in water and cool my tongue for a moment, that momentary pleasure, I'd remember it forever, but there's no pleasure in this place. So taste was a part of the experience. Agony in this fire. So physical feelings, agony. Um, Abraham's words, he can hear Abraham. So we've got a number of senses there mentioned within that passage. In other words, he's fully conscious. I remember William Barclay, Bible commentator, saying about this passage is Luke, the author, does not waste a single word. It's so precise the way this is told. The passage goes on in 1625, says, But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted and you are here in agony. Besides all this, between us, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. 
you notice that final comment. You can't leave. You can't go from heaven to hell. You can't go from hell to heaven. You can't get, you know, it's a decision that it's made here on earth. Once you're there, you're stuck there. And I, I realize in the 1100s, uh, a theology titled Purgatory was created. Um, and the idea was, well, you know, um, you can eventually, if you do your suffering long enough, you can eventually get out of hell and end up in heaven. Um, Martin Luther in the 1500s, um, he was a Catholic priest and he decided he would go back to the original source, to the Greek New Testament. And as he studied the Greek New Testament, he realised there's nothing about purgatory in it. And uh, he knew why it had been invented, because he said that, well, the thing was, at the time, indulgences were everywhere. What, what am I talking about? If you pay for an indulgence, that means you can free granny from hell, because she was a nasty old coot. But look, if you pay for an indulgence, you could free her from hell. And Martin Luther realised, this isn't in there. There's nothing about indulgences in the Bible. So he started, of course, to preach against it. But the passage we just read reminds us, no, there's, once you're there, you can't cross over. You can't get out of the place. The passage goes on to say, 1927, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham said. But if someone, someone goes from the dead to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Our own uh, scholar, Leon Morris, who used to live here in Melbourne, great Bible commentator, he says this, please do not be confused. The rich man is not in hell because of his riches. In fact, it's very interesting even in the account that Abraham is next to Lazarus. Abraham was an extremely wealthy man. He's in heaven, he's in paradise. Don't think it's got anything to do with the riches. He goes on to say this, the one thing that is identified about the brothers is that what, what do they need to do? They need to listen to the law and the prophets. In other words, they need to embrace the scriptures. You ignore the scriptures, they'll end up in the same place as you. Clearly the rich man had ignored the scriptures and found himself in hell. Interesting thought, isn't it? We have another man called Lazarus in the Bible, don't we? He did rise from the dead. Now, there's no indication that it's the same guy, but it's, a, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? <laughs> if it is the same guy, did he tell the five brothers? I don't know. Did he warn them? Well, we just don't know. In the last series, I talked about the experience of Pastor Daniel Ekawaku, a Nigerian who um, had a serious car accident and died. And I talk about the interview with the doctor who signed his his uh, his death certificate and uh and also the guy who was the mortician who knew his body was in the morgue for three days well he was prayed over and came back to life and one of the things he talks about is this incredible experience he had of heaven it was just amazing but he also said in the journey of that experience he was taken to the very gates of hell and he could hear the wailing and torment 
Today, that pastor goes around all over Africa preaching about eternity. The beauty of heaven, but also the reality of hell. My friends, the second good thing about hell is this. There is a way for everyone to escape hell. There is a way for everyone to escape hell. No one need go there. And let me briefly tell you what that pathway is. It says in Isaiah 59.2, It is your sins that have cut you off from God. And we see the little fellow there. Well, you see the man there standing on the cliff. Great chasm beneath him. On the green side, the idea is that's God. You can connect with God. He's over the other side. But there's a great chasm there. Your sins have cut you off from God. But Jesus, as we remembered in communion, has actually got an answer for that. All of us have shortcomings, failings. None of us measure up to God's holy standards. But forgiveness is possible through Jesus' work on the cross. And that's how this gap can be bridged. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. God is on one side and all the people are on the other side. And Jesus himself is between them to bring them together, giving his life for all of humanity. And here we see this image, the image of the cross. They're bridging the gap. The eternal death is underneath that, but you can cross over by faith in Jesus. You can actually, the the cross has bridged the gap to the point where you can have that relationship with God. How do we get that relationship? Remember a couple of wonderful verses, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, Jesus' own words. As he sits and talks with a religious leader, he says to him, about himself, for God so loved the world, Nicodemus, you can put your name in there, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What did he mean by giving his son? He meant to give his son not only to live in this world, to be a model for us to follow, but to also die a cosmic death, a supernatural death, a death that was a sacrifice for the sins of humanity, making it possible for all who believe to come to God. In that verse, it talks about eternal life. What on earth is eternal life? Well, in the same book, John defines it by recording one of Jesus' prayers. 17.3, Jesus prays this. This is eternal life, knowing you, the only true God. Eternal life is about knowing God. It's not only about our future, it's about our current. Eternal life starts the moment you come to know Jesus. And that assures your eternity in heaven. Two steps to secure your place in heaven. Number one, Acts 3.19. It says this, Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Firstly, turn. Turn to God that you might cross that bridge to eternal life. What what do I mean by turn? Turn, Turning has to do with this concept of repentance where you, you might be doing your own thing. You're walking in your own direction. You're doing whatever you want to do. To repent, to turn, is literally to turn. It's like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to go in a different direction. I'm going to do Jesus' thing, not my own thing. The second step is to trust. John 1.12 says this, But to all who trust him and accept him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Trust. It has to do with faith. Believing Jesus really is the Son of God. Believing Jesus really did die on the cross for the sins of humanity. Believing he rose again. Believing you can know him today. By faith, people can escape hell. And I'm going to finish with a prayer. A prayer where you can actually invite Jesus to be a part of your life. And make sure 
you're not on your way to hell. Make sure you are on your way to heaven. That's certainly where Jesus wants you to go. I was teaching my son, Zach, uh, a memory verse in the car after youth uh, on Friday night. Very easy verse. Reference is not so easy to remember. 1 John 4, 8. You know this one? You will when I say it. God is love. God is love. Just three words and yet so profound. God wants you in heaven. He wants everyone in heaven. He doesn't want anyone to miss out. But he's made a pathway that we need to be willing to follow. Let me lead you in this prayer. Let's be upstanding as we close in prayer. Let's stand up, everyone. We're going to finish with a song in a moment. But right now, let's, um, let's pray this prayer. I'm going to read it first so you know what you're praying. <laughs> it's up there on the screen anyway. A prayer of salvation. Lord Jesus, I do believe you are the Son of God. I do believe you died on the cross to take away my sins. I ask you to come into my life today and be my leader. I choose the day to cross the bridge, escape hell and walk into eternity. Shall we pray that together out aloud? I'll read it slowly this time. Let's pray it slowly. Lord Jesus, I do believe you are the Son of God. I do believe you died on a cross to take away my sins. I ask you to come into my life today and be my leader. I choose today to cross the bridge, escape hell and walk into eternity. Friends, a simple prayer like that can secure your salvation. I'm going to ask Rox to come and pray for us and we're going to prepare for a final song. Let's just close our service in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the message that you have given Pastor Lee this morning to bring to us. And Lord, I just pray that each one of us will see the relevance of that, not just for our own lives, but also for those around us, that it will give us the confidence to be able to speak the reality of an eternity without you to those that we love and those around us. Lord, help us. Help us to know that you will guide us in these conversations and help us, Lord, not to be afraid, but to help us speak truth as you ask us to do in your scriptures, that we take the gospel throughout the world. And Lord, I thank you for the message this morning and I thank you, Lord, that you have given us this great commission and I just pray, Lord, as that responsibility is upon us that we are not doing it alone, but we are doing it in your strength and with your blessing. And we pray this in your mighty, mighty name. Amen.